You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Live from London, this is Midori House. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Rod Rosenstein is out. The U.S. Deputy Attorney General was reported to have discussed invoking the 25th Amendment in an aim to remove the president, why his exit could have enormous consequences for the Russia investigation. Meanwhile, another woman comes forward with an allegation of sexual misconduct related to Brett Kavanaugh, as the Democrats close in on the GOP's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. There are a lot of issues around Brett that uh, involving what was happening in high school, etc. But even before all of this happened, uh, he had credibility issues in his testimony, three days of testimony. So what does it all mean for the legitimacy of the U.S. top court? I'll ask my guests Juliet Foster and Carlo Benura. Plus, Donald Trump gets sent for takeoff at the United Nations. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. We'll also look at how Thailand is responding to a rise in anti-government graffiti and ask if political ads on television still work. That's all ahead on Midori House, starting now. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are journalist and broadcaster Juliet Foster and Carlo Benura, Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS. Welcome both to the program. We'll get to the U.S. Supreme Court in a moment, but first, news broke a short time ago that Rod Rosenstein, the American Deputy Attorney General, is expected to leave his post. The reports come just days after it was revealed he discussed secretly recording Donald Trump and invoking the 25th Amendment, which would remove the president from office, or could. Mr. Rosenstein is the top Justice Department official overseeing the special counsel investigation and has long been a defender of Robert Mueller, but has also been in the crosshairs of the president for what Trump calls a witch hunt. It's unclear whether... Uh, He will resign, but it's expected he could be leaving that post. Uh, Regarding the Russia investigation, uh, perhaps, Juliet, we'll start with you. This isn't all good news for Mr. Trump, is it, if he's out? Uh, Well, yeah, not necessarily, because, look, at the end of the day, I mean, you're you're absolutely correct, uh, Mr. Trump has actually condemned the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt and that it's motivated by politics, even though Mueller himself is a Republican. So I don't quite know how you can square those ends. But... um, if he he will he will hope that um, Rosenstein's successor will use his authority to close this down. But if he does close down the Mueller inquiry, then it will feed the conspiracists who will say, well, maybe Mueller got very close to the truth. Mm. And that's why you're shutting it down. And uh, also as well, um, Mr. Rosenstein's successor, he would... In my opinion, I'm not a legal expert, he would have to have some very good grounds to shut it down. So if he's actually succumbing to some kind of pressure, then doesn't that cheapen the value of his office or uh, his ability to be objective? And also as well, this is an administration which has got more leaks coming out of it then um, a burst pipe releases water. If this, if this inquiry was shut down, my theory is that uh, there are people who've spent a lot of time and energy trying to excavate things and they will come to the conclusion, well, you know what? You can't silence the truth and perhaps there'll be yet even more leaks into the public mm. domain. So perhaps the best thing to do is just to let Mr. Mueller and his team get on with it and ride out any consequences if indeed there are any. 
Yeah, if there is pressure from the White House here, it's probably a fine line, Carlo, for the president. If he were to replace Rosenstein, it could be seen as obstruction of justice. Uh, same too if he fills the role with someone seen as more favor- favorable or that could have influence over Mueller himself. So no matter, it's a tough balance for the president, is it not? It's a tough balance, but I think that this has been a Department of Justice that he simply cannot figure out how to break up or how to uh, reduce its influence over the Mueller investigation, but also the fact that it's a a kind of, I'm sure Trump sees the Department of Justice currently as this outpost of intransigence within Mm -hmm. his own administration. And uh, Rosenstein is an interesting, if he does actually resign and if his resignation is accepted, this is an interesting, uh, he's an interesting um, figure to go first because this doesn't involve uh, Trump removing um, Jeff Sessions, which would obviously be a huge political cost. uh, And it's not an end to the uh, Mueller investigation outright. It's perhaps politically the only uh, workable solution for Trump at this stage. What I was interested in is that if, if he is actually the source of the rumors that uh, officials were trying to were going to thinking about using the 25th amendment right to oust trump then i think that for conservatives this might actually be a little bit um uh you know they can put their mind at ease slightly because what would be worse is if they found out that someone very very close to the president was having that type of discussions but for rosenstein who is an enemy of the president yeah this uh it makes sense and for for people in the uh, conservative media, this is something that they could simply just brush off now. Mm. And I do wonder as well whether Rosenstein also op-edited that piece in the New York Times yeah. and that perhaps he's been rumbled. But again, if, if he does leave of his own accord or if indeed Mr. Trump pushes him out, when can we expect the book? Because quite a few right. books have been <laughs> written about the Trump presidency by those on the inside and those on the outside or indeed those who got a little bit too upfront and personal for their own good. <laughs> I think we know who I'm, I'm referring to there. <laughs> in all of this, does anyone have a tough job than Rosenstein. He sits between the White House and the special counsel, mm. and his superior, Jeff Sessions, as we mentioned, recused himself. Mm. What do you well, think of that, Julia? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it, it is a tough job, but I come back to what I've said before, and in many ways, Jeff, Jeff Sessions is in that position, because look, Jeff Sessions recused himself from overseeing the Mueller investigation because he had he had links or had contact with some of the Russians who have been mm. named with this. So it was a logical thing to do. He had to stand back. He was doing the right thing. Of course, Mr. Trump doesn't see this because as far as he is concerned, he feels that Jeff Sessions should behave as if he is his own personal lawyer. And I think a lot of that mentality has perhaps spilt over into the way that he has dealt with Rod Rosenstein. And again, it's this schizoid approach that um, when Sessions and Rosenstein were appointed, um, we couldn't get enough about the praises the president was heaping on them, that they were good men and they were great for the job. Right. And then, of course, when they do their job, they're actually criticised. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And the problem lies with the president. He has to, he has to remember that these... This area, the, the Justice Department, it is a department which, is, which belongs to the government. It is not Mr. Trump's personal fiefdom. The people who work there are not there to serve Donald Trump. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. 
Uh, certainly. And this is a story that uh, we'll continue to follow here on Monocle 24. We don't have the full details, but it's uh, reported that uh, Rod Rosenstein will be leaving his post as Deputy Attorney General. Staying in the United States, I want to move on now to the uh, Kavanaugh uh, hearing that will be coming up. Uh, the woman who has accused Judge Brett, Kav- Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault has agreed to testify at the Senate Judiciary Committee this coming Thursday. However, Donald Trump's pick for the Supreme Court may yet face another political firestorm. Just as an agreement was reached with Christine Blasey Ford, reports of another accusation of assault were reported by the New Yorker magazine. That was yesterday. The New Yorker's article by Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer, uh, two of the magazine's most revered journalists, recounted allegations by a woman named Deborah Ramirez. She described events at a dormitory party back at Yale in around 1983. This would be in around the same year as the other accusations. She also wants the FBI to investigate. Um, Any chance they will, Carlo? Uh, I think right now it's been said that the FBI will not investigate Mm -hmm. these uh, Mm -hmm. matters. Donald Trump, in trying to brush this off, said that why didn't they go back to the FBI? Excuse me, why didn't these women go to the FBI uh, to begin with? Which, of course, is not what they would have done. They would have gone to the police. Mm. Uh, And I think that this is... Uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not, I don't think the Anita Hill, uh, mm. when Anita Hill came up with her allegations that that mm. was investigated by the FBI. So I'm not sure why um, I'm not sure why the FBI is being referenced in this way. Of course, the the with regard to the um, the court's legitimacy, it is a very distressing that this is the same type of dynamic that we mm. went through over uh, what is it three decades mm. ago now, yeah. uh, and. I, I have to say that I don't think that the court's legitimacy was um, damaged by the Anita Hill uh, hearings. A lot of other things were damaged by the, the Anita Hill hearings. And, of course, uh, Clarence Thomas, if you're on the left, Clarence Thomas uh, became uh, someone who voted constantly on ideological grounds. Uh, and I think af- a decade after his appointment, people, unfortunately, maybe are not thinking about what Anita Hill went through, but are thinking mm. about th- that type of political Although she's certainly talking about mm. it now for obvious reasons yeah, and how she was treated or mistreated, as many would say. Yeah. Uh, there have been suggestions Republicans may arrange for Thursday's testimony by Christine Blasey Ford to be chaired by female lawyers rather than the all-male panel of senators that they do have. Is there any chance, Juliet, this is going to give it a better look? I doubt it very much because of the... It, well, first of all, look at the backdrop against which this has arisen. It is mm. Me Too. And the whole point about the Me Too movement was that it wasn't just encouraging women who worked in the film industry to come forward and talk about inappropriate behaviour of men who frankly should have known better. It then rolled out and said, look, it doesn't matter where the men are. It doesn't matter if, it, if you're working in a shop. It doesn't matter if you're working in the legal department. It doesn't matter. Where this sort of behaviour has occurred, these allegations, it needs to be called out. And I, I personally feel that if you have women who will be there interrogating the accuser. It's a very cynical move, and it just it's just a blatant attempt at adding a little bit of window dressing, quite frankly, to somehow mm. imply that, um, look, we take these things very, very seriously. I mean, you should, you should take them seriously anyway. Yeah, they are very serious mm. accusations. It doesn't matter if they were made, um, if, if the instance they refer to happened 30-odd years ago. They still happened. And there are real questions about the climate that existed when these, these, uh, this, 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 this incident allegedly occurred, that uh, the accuser didn't feel that she could go forward right. and report it. 
So she sat on it for all of these years. And it took three decades or so for a movement like Me Too to say, look, it doesn't matter when these things occurred, come on out and talk about it. So putting win- women there to, to somehow sanitise proceedings, no, it is just window dressing. And I think that mm. the accuser herself would see through that, as most people would. Carlo, you're nodding your head in agreement there. I just think that uh, if you have a group of 11 men who are supposed to be they're uh, members of Congress, they're supposed to be national leaders, and that they do not feel uh, confident in their ability to talk about to talk to a woman mm. about what uh, has happened to her, and that somehow they don't feel that like they could be fair enough. It demonstrates a total lack of responsibility and mm. abdication of uh, mm. pl- you know power in this situation, uh, and. I mean, I know why they're doing it, because they're trying to get out of a situation in which either either in the worst case scenario that one of them says something that they shouldn't, or in the best case scenario that they come off as unfair somehow because right. it's of the political nature of the committee. Uh, but I just think the, the last thing in the context of Me Too that, that men want to be doing is to demonstrate to women that they simply can't talk about these issues publicly. Yeah, sure. so, so dump it on the woman, basically, yeah, exactly. because they can talk about these things better than men, which is, it's it's lazy, okay? The fact of the matter is that, yes, we've had these accusations levelled against a candidate for the Supreme Court, but let's be grown up about this. There will be other men seeking prominent positions in this administration or indeed in the others to follow. And some of them will will be dogged by accusations about things that they did in their very distant past or their recent past. These these issues will still have to be confronted. You can't keep on dumping it on the woman every time it occurs. Okay, this is something which people have to get used to talking about and dealing with, but simply offloading it onto somebody else, that's lazy. We've talked about the legitimacy of the court there and and, uh, and uh, talked about the politics of, of the overarching politics of this whole uh, scenario. Is there anything here, Carlo, that's not wholly partisan? The Republicans obviously trying to poke holes in this uh, testimony and the Democrats trying to uh, legitimize it as as valid, but it's it's all politics, isn't it? I think that's absolutely correct, and mm-hmm. this, it's um, it is very. It's one of the sad things about this situation, and the, the, again, what really strikes me is the how, what kind of a repeat this is to Anita Hill mm-hmm. uh, when that was also politicized in the same way. In terms of the the way in which the case will affect the legitimacy of the Supreme Court more generally, I think uh, that. The Supreme Court is a very complex, this is going to sound maybe perhaps possibly slightly elitist or strange, but the Supreme Court is very complex. The federal judiciary is a very complex system. Mm. And uh, I think that Americans view the court through a very limited number of cases, for instance, Roe v. Wade. Mm. uh, And they see that for the first time in a very, very long time uh, that there may be a solid majority on the court. And that is a product of um, uh, Brandon Bartell in the and the Washington Post read a, wrote a very good article on this. That's a product of two things. One is that from Bill Clinton onward, uh, the presidents only began to pick uh, appointee, sorry, only began to appoint justices uh, with their own ideological affiliation mm. or their only ideological sensibilities. That didn't happen before Bill Clinton. And the second thing is uh, the issues related to the supermajority in the Senate. That's going to result in a more polarized uh, court. Right. And that, I think, is um, that could have some effect on the way in which Americans see it. Although since the 1970s, Americans, 40% of Americans think that the Supreme Court has just the right amount of uh, ideological diversity on it. Mm. So. Mm. And there is an irony as well, because you picked up there on Roe versus Wade, which was a landmark abortion ruling. And, uh, the, the, well, the, there are many conservatives 
both in, in, inside politics and outside, who favour um, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh as, as the new Supreme Court judge because of his conservative position and this hope, this aspiration that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. And to me, I mean, in the current um, cycle in which we're living, the current political cycle, you cannot rule out the impossibility. So it would be rather disturbing if you had a very conservative Supreme Court panel where you've had... Um, Let's say, for argument's sake, that Brett Kavanaugh is selected, but a man who is at the centre of, of of questions about his sexual conduct. You've had Clarence Brown, who was um, at the centre of uh, these of sexual allegations, backed by a president who is himself at the centre of allegations of sexual harassment, actually making a judgment over a very pivotal piece of legislation which will affect the fertility rights of women, or basically the birth control rights of women. There's something cruelly ironic about that. Very well said, indeed, and we look forward to uh, seeing how this plays out for the rest of this week stateside. Uh, staying in the U.S., though, uh, much of the press there paying not paying as much attention to what will be happening at the U.N. General Assembly coming up as U.N. braces for the arrival of a U.S. president who, as recently as Sunday, was criticizing the organization. Observers will be considering how effective the international body might be in the absence of an effective American president. Uh, will the international community be taking the U.S. seriously this time at all, do you think, Juliet? <laughs> well, I guess if you're a died in the wool cynic, you might say there's absolutely no reason why we should be taken seriously, mm. why Americans should be taken seriously. I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it, that on the one hand, you've got these domestic things which are happening in, in Donald Trump's immediate backyard, and uh, the security with the UN General Assembly, the Security Council, all the sort of happenings which go on there, which affect all of us, we're not really taking much notice yeah. of it. It's with the exception, of course, of this fine programme. But um, will the US be taken seriously? Oh, Perhaps that's um, not, I wouldn't quite look at it in those terms. For me, um, the, the big question is, will Donald Trump stray off script? Yeah. Because with the midterms are coming up, and I would not be at all surprised if we hear the, the expression crooked Hillary lock her up, somehow make it into the opening address <laughs> of um, the General Assembly, or um, I'm a stable genius in relation to, the, to yeah. North Korea and, and anything else that you, that you choose to throw in. Because look, let's face it, the lexicon is overstuffed yeah. with, the, with, with Trump phrases. But you, you do raise a very valid point, though, about America's position in this. And the reason why um, you, you, we, we, people are wondering whether America should be taken seriously is because of the way that traditional alliances have been upended. When Donald Trump goes into that chamber, even if he can't see it, it is pretty evident that the old alliances have shifted. You know, that you had countries like um, Canada, Japan, blocks like the European Union, they would be firmly behind the United States. But now they've got every reason, if you like, to sort of keep their distance. And of course, the Russians and the Chinese, they're loving this because they actually find that they've got some sure. common ground with the Europeans and the Japanese mm. and the Canadians. And I'm not really sure if Donald Trump can see this because he would say, well, you know, these old orders need to be upended anyway. They've been due for an overhaul for some time. But are they really, given that there are other dramas which are happening in the world stage, the Syria crisis has not been resolved. Of course, the Russians are heavily involved in that. They are in the driving seat. Nobody's actually asked themselves, well, is it healthy to have a, a Syria which is still led by Bashar al-Assad yeah. at a time when the country has been decimated and the hatred, the anger 
um, towards him hasn't gone away at all. Let's not forget, of course, that you've got Saudi Arabia, a very resurgent Saudi Arabia, because they have the blatant support of the Americans behind them. And of course, Israel feels emboldened because, again, Donald Trump has shifted the embassy to Jerusalem. He's upended the traditional policy strategy towards the Middle East, solving the crisis between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There's no room now for the idea mm. of a two-state solution. He's made it perfectly clear. It's dead. Yeah. I t- I'm, I'm working with the Israelis. I back Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Trump, you know, we heard the clip off the top of, uh, of Trump blasting Kim Jong-un last year, but he <laughs> spent much of this year courting adversaries, unlike the past year. Um, his cozy relationship with dictators creates a bit more of a <laughs> sticky situation at the UN, doesn't it, Carlo? Uh, it does. I think in, in terms of the uh, antipathy that the current administration has for the UN and also uh, Don- some of Donald Trump's very clear public statements about the United Nations not doing anything, mm-hmm. not solving problems. Uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that perhaps one of uh, th- that we have to recognize that some of the things that Donald Trump does are not novel. So there's a very healthy tradition uh, over the last mm-hmm. 30 years, at least since the Reagan, Reagan administration, of uh, conservative administrations in the United States bashing the United Nations. Uh, and in fact, the common denominator here between uh, the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, and Trump is John Bolton. Right. And so mm. John Bolton actually is probably fueling uh, Trump's rage against the United Nations. Bolton himself was in the very similar position that Nikki Haley was in, in terms of mm. being a ambassador to the United Nations who, who doesn't believe that the United Nations should exist as a prominent institution. Uh, and so this is uh, it makes it makes sense. I also think that in, this was a, our conversation is based on a CNN uh, editorial, and I think that. Uh, uh, that editorial also kind of gets it wrong that this is not this um, anger against the United Nations is not novel to Donald Trump. It it, it makes sense for us to include it in in all of the other ways that he's sure. tried to uh, rearrange or upend, as you said, mm. uh, uh, traditional alliances. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time, we we can think of many many votes on Palestine where the United it's the United States. Uh, and Israel right. almost alone in terms of these uh, outcomes. So I think that um, uh, John Bolton is getting his way. He, he has a second shot at this uh, to, to uh, try to destabilize the America's relationship with the United Nations as much as possible. And at least at this stage, we haven't gotten to the point where we're in the Reagan administration where uh, we're withholding the United States is withholding right. funding, alti- funding mm. altogether. And so. I think you're absolutely right about uh, the, the the perspective towards the the the, the United Nations because I, I think it was during the the second Gulf War was it um, Donald Rumsfeld mm-hmm. and and George and George W. Bush they actually yeah. expressed this frustration with the United Nations. You could say it was very political because the, the council was split about backing this war. Yeah. And I think it was Rumsfeld who said, "Well, look, you know, maybe the thing to do is just to get rid of the UN security, the, well, the United Nations, because as a body, it is past its best." And we don't need it. It is not fit for purpose in the 20th century, right. as it was at the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. again, it, it, what you've, you're absolutely correct. What we're seeing now, perhaps, is an extension of that point of view. And it's gained a, a bit more traction sure. because you've got the ideal figurehead in front of you. In other words, Donald Trump yeah. to, to actually, if, if he can't articulate it, there are others around him who will do that. But clearly, he backs the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Juliet Foster, and Carlo Benura. I want to drag us out of the U.S. now and take us... Uh, <laughs> Must you. <laughs> yeah, take us around the globe uh, to Thailand. It would usually take more than a spray can to rattle a team of powerful middle military chiefs, but in Thailand, even the suggestion of political satire can come with serious consequences. The artist known as Headache, however, <laughs> is remaining defiant. His stencil art around Bangkok regularly takes aim at the country's most powerful leaders, such as the depiction of Thailand's Hunta chief as a lucky cat with one paw raised ready to rake in the cash. <laughs> so, uh, Carla, why has Headache been able to get away with this, first off? Well, it's very interesting to see how, if he'll be able to get away with it after yeah. this wave of international publicity, right. actually, because this, <laughs> this uh, piece was covered across the region uh, and, uh, you know, has been, is being picked, we're talking about it right now. He is, the comparison is between him and Banksy. And I must admit that the, uh, you know, his public persona is slightly more open. There, right. there are videos of him um, having interviews with other uh, kind of independent uh, art media and, this is something that the the you know he himself says he doesn't worry about actually um, the police coming after him because uh, they wouldn't do something it would raise uh, some type of international backlash but right. I think that he's not uh, insulated from that and this is a this is a government which has demonstrated that when small groups of civil society actors get together or um, uh, activists get together mm -hmm. and protest in very small numbers that they charge them with sedition and uh, they arrest these leaders. So he has to be very careful. Right. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of um, the military catching up rather than actually allowing it. Beyond that, political commentary has been quite muted since the 2014 coup, has it not? Political commentary, but also, um, you know, we haven't, that right now there's a ban on all political activities, which means that there can be no meetings about politics more than five mm. people in public. And uh, this has had an incredibly chilling effect on on uh, Thailand's politics. There is a very large ant, uh, social movement that was in, uh, that supported the deposed uh, Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, referred to as the Red Shirt Movement. Right. And mm. that that movement did not come out into the streets after the coup, like many people thought it would. And uh, that that would be really the core source of. Uh, political popular opposition to the government that's not there and these smaller groups including people like headache are taking incredible risks uh, making these type of stands publicly is mm. we've talked about uh, the possibility of, of uh, small numbers of people being cracked down on and, and used it as, as an example perhaps but is something like political satire as something as trivial trivial as this a sign of weakness perhaps in Thailand do you think Juliet well again you've got you've got a government which has actually kept kept an eye grip on the country and remember they they came in at the time because they said order was needed mm. and the inference was was that they were only going to stay there for a short while until order had been restored mm. what they forgot forgot to tell us was that they were the ones restoring the order and that they had absolutely no intention of leaving. So yes, they're bound to be uh, things thin-skinned. They will have a sense of humour deficit, but lots, let's not forget that even if they try to silence headache, I'm sure there will be thousands of other headaches out there who will simply yeah. pick, up with, mm. pick up where he left off. And don't forget that you can't suppress the internet because a lot of these pictures have been Photographed and they've been carried on the various uh, social media networks, and they've they've added to to headaches fame. Mm. So um, 
yeah, this this is not going to stop because they're cracking down. If anything, this feeds Mm. it. And you've got to admit that some of the artwork is pretty cool, actually. I've seen some of the (laughs) pictures. They're very impressive. It's it's not just the lucky cat, but I think there was also the captured cat. Mm. There was a black cat. Yeah, the black panther that was captured. It's an endangered species, but it didn't stop a member of the Mm. government from hunting one because he wanted a pet. It's a very exotic Mm. pet, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the deputy prime minister's face inside an alarm yes, clock, yes. a nod to his inexplicable collection of luxury watches. Well, it's but a bit like an old Marcus's shoes, really, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, finally today, with the midterm elections in the U.S. six weeks away, we'll go back stateside. Uh, television schedules increasingly clogged with political advertisements. But even in a country where political ads can be downright nasty, this perhaps sets a new standard. Paul Gosar, the congressman isn't doing anything to help rural America. Paul's absolutely not working for his district. If they care about health care, they care about their children's health care. They would hold him to account. If they care about jobs, they would hold him to account. If he actually cared about people in rural Arizona, I bet he'd be fighting for Social Security, for better access to health care. I, I bet he would be researching what is the most insightful water policy to help the environment of Arizona sustain itself and be successful. And he's not listening to you, and he doesn't have your interests at heart. My name is Tim Gosar. David Gosar. Grace Gosar. Joan Gosar. Gaston Gosar. Jennifer Gosar. Paul Gosar is my brother. My brother. And I endorse Dr. Brill. Dr. Brill wholeheartedly endorse Dr. David Brill for Congress. I'm Dr. David Brill, and I approve this message. Well, there you have it, the voices of the siblings of Arizona Republican Paul Gosar in an advertisement for the man who hopes to defeat him, the Democrat David Brill. As far as TV ads go, Juliet, this one perhaps wins for effectiveness, does it not? It it does win for effectiveness. It goes to prove that you can choose your friends but not your family. Mm. And you do have to ask yourself, (laughs) if if these guys get together at mum's house for Sunday lunch, is she going to have to somehow stop them misusing the cutlery turning Mm. it against the brother? I mean, it's it's a great piece of campaigning. Would it make much difference? I doubt it very much because I think he's held the seat since 2011 or thereabouts and he's got a pretty strong, uh, well, he's he's come back on very strong swings. So um, it, it might actually have the opposite effect it might encourage yeah. people to vote for him, but it's kept us amused. Is that below the belt then, do you think? Rounding up his siblings? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's a political strategist's dream. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh, and I mean, in, in, the, in U.S. politics, family matters a lot. Yeah. Uh, and But in this case, I think you're right uh, that this is this is Arizona. Mm. None of these, I, as I was uh, listening to the list of issues that... Um, that they were uh, talking about that that the that he's not uh, focused on. Uh, Arizona is a very conservative state, yeah. and many of these things, for instance, environmental water, sustainable environmental water policy, is not what's going to be on people's minds. And I think that was even pointed out in sort of the rebuttal, saying, you know, we're going to carry on with with uh, our conservative values. And mm. to the point being, by Paul Gosar, is that none of his siblings live in Arizona, yeah. and his mom still has his back. She came out with a statement Absolutely. as well. So. <laughs> but I think. He's also said, well, the only reason my siblings are saying this about me is yeah. because they're all disgruntled Hillary Clinton yeah, <laughs> supporters. Yeah. So that explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, this, this, we'll see how far and wide it gets distributed. But uh, do you think this type of ad in its format can still work? Is it effective? 
Uh, I was, th- you know, the, the ad is interesting because we don't know until the very end that they're all siblings. Right. And when I first mm-hmm. heard the the ad, I thought to myself, this is kind of interesting because it is kind of very straight talking. Uh, and I thought aesthetically it was very, it was fairly well done, although the production value is not too high. Um, and then you have the kicker. So I think mm. that that it is, it, there is a kind of um, a very down to earth aspect of the ad, even without it, them being their siblings, mm. their okay. siblings. Are the short and punchy social media posts uh, more effective, do you think, Juliet, than this sort of uh, long-winded uh, stab <laughs> at a brother, backstab, perhaps? <laughs> I guess it all depends on how they, how they yeah. use I me. Mean, you can have a yeah. great internet campaign. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be successful. Mm. I mean, it's to me, it's, it, it, it is the, re- the, the reverse effect because I, I, I don't think it will make that much difference. It might eat yeah. into his lead up to a certain extent, but not enough to give him a sleepless night. In actual fact, it, in, it, in some ways, it reminds me of a very famous campaign which took place in New Zealand where a woman said don't vote for me don't vote for me mm. and of course everybody did she didn't want to be a councillor but she stood in the <laughs> council and she ended up winning so it can I don't know maybe it'll go the other way but I doubt it somehow uh, well we shall see and that music means we're quickly running out of time here on today's show Carlo Benura and Juliet Foster thank you so much for the lively debate and for joining us here at Midori House today's show produced by Ben Ryland researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco our studio manager David Stevens more music is next and then at 1900 hours the monocle culture show and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the monocle daily that's at 2200 london time with andrew muller midori house back at the same time tomorrow 1800 in london 1900 in zurich i'm daniel bates thank you so much for listening and goodbye